I came to Colorado when I was 10 years old, and I've always felt fortunate that I had an opportunity to see old Colorado. I grew up on Gene Autry and Roy Rogers and, and the Lone Ranger, and even though I was in the Midwest until I was 10. So I love the West. I love the openness of the West. I love the wildness of the West. Hello and welcome to Notes from the Yard. You're listening to Episode 18, Down Left Hand Creek. An exciting part of beekeeping is the invitation it offers to explore in your local landscape. We've talked in past episodes about the bloom and bears. This episode touches on both those topics, and it's also about people being part of an agricultural community and local traditions. My name is Laura Tyler. I'm your producer and host. This is episode 18, Down Left Hand Creek, written by Tom Theobald in 1990 and read by Tom in 2021. Doyle Hornbaker's ancestors were among the first farmers to arrive along the Front Range, settling near Niwot in 1862. In his later years, Doyle lived in a small house in downtown Niwot, and he came by our house nearly every day on his walk. I would often amble up front when I saw him coming and strike up a conversation. Easy enough to do since Doyle was an eager talker with many tales to tell. I recalled one of these stories as John and I prepared to set off on our odyssey down Left Hand Creek, looking for the errant bear. Doyle had said that when his great-grandfather was setting up the homestead northeast of town, he had to travel several miles for seedling cottonwoods to plant around the house. There wasn't a single tree growing along the entire course of Left Hand Creek, from where it left the foothills to its junction with the St. Vrain River in Longmont. The only source of saplings had been an island in Boulder Creek near Valmont. Much had changed in the intervening years, and now the creek which John and I were starting down was heavily overgrown for much of its course. In just the past ten years, it had become a corridor for the increasing deer herd, wandering its way east. Then more recently the mountain lions following the deer, and now the bear. Starting at my bee yard at the herb farm, about a mile east of the foothills, John took one side of the creek and I the other as we worked our way downstream looking for tracks or other signs of our bear. It was a sunny Colorado morning, and as we moved along, we marveled at the multitude of flowering plants which had escaped both plow and hungry mouths along the creek. By noon, we had covered the first two miles, and while one streamside couple we talked with had seen the bear in late June, we had found no fresh sign of any kind. As we neared Haystack Golf Course, we both decided a cold drink was in order, 
and once inside I introduced myself to the manager, inquiring if any golfers had reported seeing a bear recently. Overhearing our conversation, a small knot of golfers gathered round as we talked, and there were many concerned looks and inquiries about their safety. I assured them that they probably had nothing to fear, but they all seemed so intent, so serious, that I could hardly resist a little mischief. As we left, I said, But if you should see him on the golf course, be careful. He has a bad slice and you shouldn't make fun of him. We hurried down the path as the golfers began to realize that we were just having a little fun at their expense. Just to the east of the golf course, we began to see our first indications of the bear. Old tracks and a small bee yard that had been raided earlier. Here the creek skirted Brigadoon subdivision, and the bear had passed through a number of backyards. Further on, past 63rd Street, an abandoned hive lay in pieces in the creek. When we started out, I thought there might be an outside chance that we would actually flush the bear, but the most exciting part of the day occurred just before we crossed Oxford Road. As I approached the road, I noticed the field fence, which lay very low, and wondered how they were keeping the cattle in. I found out in mid-stride, as the electric fence caught me just above the knees. I was leaning forward when I hit the fence and tried unsuccessfully to backpedal for a second, feeling energized and very foolish, until a forward somersault finally solved my dilemma. John heard my yells from across the creek and came splashing over, sure that I had either broken a leg or encountered the bear. We stood on the road for some time, our sides aching and tears running down our cheeks as we enjoyed the humor of it all. But when we continued on, I privately reminded myself that I was probably getting a little old to be doing gymnastics in people's pastures. Crossing 73rd Street at Evan Gould's farm, we entered one of the wildest little stretches along the creek. The area downstream from Evans had been a favorite of the deer for a number of years. The previous winter, Evan had had a mountain lion in his pasture along the creek, undoubtedly attracted by the deer and by the abundant cover. This stretch proved to be a favorite of the bear as well, and as we got into it, we found bear sign everywhere. He had obviously spent a great deal of time in there, but after a thorough search, the freshest sign we could find was several days old. We emerged from the undergrowth at 81st Street within sight of the poet's bees. Wet, scratched, muddy, tired, and mosquito-bitten. Our enthusiasm for bear hunting had waned considerably since morning, and given our condition and the lack of fresh sign, we both decided that we had had enough of this adventure. The following day I was on a plane headed for Milwaukee to join the rest of the family. 
The bear didn't make an appearance anywhere along Left Hand Creek while I was away in Wisconsin, and as August stretched on with no further raiding, I busied myself with harvest preparation and nearly forgot about our bear problems. Not so much, though, that I didn't pull the honey at the herb farm first. The quiet held until September 17th, when Chet Anderson called early in the morning. He's back. He got four colonies last night. I had a full load in the honey house and had to get to that, but Barbara volunteered to go out to the herb farm to straighten up the mess. She said the bear had returned just to say, Yep, I'm back, Tom, and still smarter than you are. A little of the humor was lost on me. That evening, after finishing up at the honey house, Barbara and I went over to Poets where the culvert trap had been sitting since July. We hooked it to the truck and towed it out to the herb farm. The following morning, the trap was sprung, but there was no bear and another colony was badly damaged. I was there shortly after sunrise, and the smell was heavy in the bee yard. He hadn't been gone too long. From the smell, I concluded that we were dealing with a young bear, probably three years old by now, since I suspect he was the same bear that had visited this yard in the fall of 1987. That evening, as I prepared for one more night camped out at a bee yard, the game warden appeared at the house. Ron asked if I intended to take a rifle along. Expecting an argument, I said I was. In July, I was told that bees weren't livestock, that I couldn't shoot this bear. I responded that if I caught him raiding a bee yard, his next life would be as a rug, and we would sort it out in court. It was mostly bluster on my part. I didn't want to shoot this bear anyway, but I wasn't about to just roll over and relinquish my rights to protect my property. To my surprise, Ron now said, If you get a shot, take him out. He had made arrangements for bear dogs to tree the bear if we got a scent, but said they would probably put him down rather than tranquilize him. The bear had worn out his welcome not only with the beekeepers, but with the Division of Wildlife as well. A three-quarter moon was up as I set up shop at the bee yard, casting suggestive shadows behind every tree and bush. Killdeer called in the distance as I lay in the moonlight, watching the shifting shadows and thinking of the summer adventure. If the bear should reappear, his future looked bleak, and in spite of the considerable financial loss I had suffered, my sentiments had begun to shift to the bear. Squeezed by mountain housing and pressed by a dry ear, these beehives were no different to him than hollow logs filled with ants. He was just following his instincts, and I admired his native cunning even if it had been at great expense to me. He had added some spice to a region that had become a little too tame, too settled and sanitized for me. 
I drifted off to sleep, hoping that he would take the trap so we could relocate him. He didn't appear that night, or the next, or the next, and I finally gave up on my camp out and relied on the culvert trap. During the course of the summer, we caught several skunks, three raccoons, and two very surprised farm dogs, but never the bear. We had learned a little about the bear, and he a little about us, but he had slipped away for the winter. I expected him to return this summer, but he didn't, and it looks like the bear Chet's neighbor saw in October wasn't him. There haven't been any raids or sightings, and it's hibernation time now, so I think we are safe for another year. But I don't think we are through with this bear if he is still alive. By next summer, he will be at least five years old and a sizable adversary. I won't be surprised if the final chapter of this story is yet to be written. Tom, what does a young bear smell like? You know, I wondered myself when I read that. It's uh, it's usually the boars that are really uh, fragrant. I'm not sure what I meant there. Well, regardless of what you meant, it paints a picture. I can picture a kind of a stinky, a smelly bear. Bears are very fragrant, and they leave a definite odor behind, particularly the boars. What is it? Yeah, tell me. Can you? Yeah, it's can you describe smell. the odor? Of course. Yeah. So <laughs> I don't know. It's just. It's. It's just awful, and very. Uh, there's no mistaking what it is. If you've, if you've smelled the bear, once. You'll always remember what a bear smells like. Okay, fair enough. So, there again, as with all your writing, there are different layers of the storytelling that intrigue me. So, right off the bat, you're talking about how there used to be no trees, and now there are trees along these drainages. What is that? Can you tell me about that change? Well, as you drive around the county, you can see long lines of mature cottonwood trees, none of which were there. The only uh, cottonwood was uh, cottonwood right at the junction of the St. Brain River and Left Hand Creek. And it was very distinctive. And the reason there were no trees along the stream courses was that in the winter... This was a congregation area for wildlife of all kinds. And they would eat off the seedlings so that there was never any regeneration of the trees. If the wildlife didn't accomplish that, periodic prairie fires would finish off whatever escaped the wildlife. I find that so fascinating because cottonwood trees along the drainages, it's such a characteristic part of the Colorado Front Range landscape. 
it's kind of weird to me that it wasn't like that. All of that is a, a consequence of settlement. Hmm. In fact, uh, Gun Barrel Hill, the people from this area will recognize the name Gun Barrel Hill. And the way Gun Barrel Hill got its name was that one of the early settlers in Longmont had gone to El Dorado Canyon for a load of house logs. And when he got to the top of Gun Barrel Hill, he sighted on the lone cottonwood at Longmont, called at that time Burlington. He sighted on that, and those wagon ruts persisted for many, many years, straight as a gun barrel, pointed toward Longmont. Hmm. Another thing that strikes me about this is these place names, because we've kept bees locally for such a long time, all these places feel meaningful. It's like you talk about 63rd Street, you talk about Oxford Road, I know exactly where you're talking about. There's something about all these words and names that, I don't know, it, it just has a feeling, it feels like Colorado. It all has meaning for me. Evan Gould, for example, it was his grandfather who settled along Left Hand Creek. He was adjacent to Doyle Hornbaker's grand, great-grandfather. And he was the last person in Boulder County to give up his workhorses. And we took him down to the pulling contests at the National Western Stock Show one year. And we parked our car at the outer lot, and we were riding the bus into the stock show. Evan was sitting across from me, and he said, You certainly look like my grandfather. And I didn't realize what that meant until I saw a book that had been done by Ann Denny several years before, and on the cover was Jerome Gould. And sure enough, he had a white beard like mine, and there was a resemblance. Yeah, how did that make you feel? I was always attracted to the earlier generations that had settled this part of the country. Unfortunately, they're almost all, well, they are all gone now. So it made me feel a little little more a part of the early settlement community. What was the draw when you think about the early settlers and that there's something attractive about that? Can you describe what that is? Just my nature. I've always been interested in history. I've always been interested in the early settlers. It's just, I, I felt very fortunate to have been welcomed into their community not as a stranger, but as one of them. And certainly when I began beekeeping, that helped in my acceptance. Thank you for listening to Notes from the Bee Yard. We publish new episodes on Fridays at noon. We'll be back next week with episode 20. In the meantime, hop on over to notesfromthebeeyard.buzz to subscribe.